There's also a bit on Liz Johnson's Wikipedia, which I don't know if this is true or not, or maybe just put on there as a prank. It says, Even after her experience on Celebrity Masterchef, she once set fire to a hotel at a wedding <laughs> whilst cooking toast. Oh, well, that can happen to even the best of us. I have also done that. So you save it, save it. That's exactly what I wanted to hear, though. Great. So we can <laughs> end with burning, burning down hotels. <laughs> Right, good, here we go. So it is the last episode of our Paralympic Feels series, which uh, which is sad, really, but here we are right at the end of what would have been the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics. And back with me for this final episode, it's Lee McKenzie. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And what would have been, that is probably the phrase of 2020, isn't it? It is, it is. <laughs> I feel like the, the last couple of weeks, though, we've sort of got back into that sort of sporting fandom, if you like, of, you know, multiple things happening at once, which, which I, for one, have really missed. You've had the cricket, you've had the US Open starting, obviously, um, the, the Formula One's back yeah, underway. Rugby's back, yes, football's back on. It does seem, from a sporting point of view, apart from the fact that still most events aren't having fans there, although rugby in Scotland did trial that on Friday night, um, it does feel like there's now plenty of live sport that we can watch and enjoy and present and bring everybody back at mm. home, which which is good news if we're, if we're looking for the positives, small positives yes. in a difficult year. It's having those sort of multiple events happening at once, isn't it? That's what does it for me. Because when there was what sort of like one thing or one rugby match on a Friday night, that, that's it. It was almost like I, I still feel I'm in the middle of some sort of weird <laughs> experiment here to see if it actually works. Exactly. And not everyone necessarily likes rugby. Not everyone likes football. So it's been nice. If you can pick and choose what you want to watch and it is there, then my goodness, you're being treated well. So this, um, how do we feel about this Paralympic series then? I, I, for one, have been really inspired and I know inspire is a sensitive word, isn't it, in the Paralympic community? Some people are okay with it. Some people really dislike able-bodied people coming in and saying they're inspired by disabled people doing sort of what they consider genuine elite sport. And and I completely get that. But... uh, I mean, think back to Charlotte Henshaw and David Clark and Tanny Gray-Thompson. There have been messages, Lee, throughout this series that I think will resonate with people across all forms of society. And hopefully there's something out of one episode somewhere that everyone will take from this series. Yeah, I totally agree. It doesn't have to be an entire subject matter. It can be an individual line. And even where we started with uh, Claire Balding, you know, we were talking about this just quite simply being excellent sport and I don't think that should ever be forgotten you know people can have tags of superhumans and all of the sort of tags and advertising slogans that go with this but ultimately these people are incredibly talented athletes doing things that most of us simply couldn't do ourselves and that really should never be forgotten and then away from that they're also just human beings trying to get on in the world trying to get on public transport trying to go into work Um, and there are difficulties you know maybe there aren't doesn't look like that when they're running 100 metres in sub-11 seconds or something, but when they go into their day-to-day life, there are still issues for them, and I think that's really important. Mm. And maybe we don't spend enough time considering that. Maybe we don't spend enough time getting disabled people into positions of influence where they can make real change within companies, within corporations, within society as a whole. And, And this, I think, Lee, is the perfect time to bring our guest onto this final episode of the Paralympic 
feels serious because this is what really she is all about. She's Liz Johnson, uh, a former Paralympic swimmer. She won a bronze, a silver and a gold in her Paralympic career, including that top prize in Beijing 2008. But now she runs The Ability People. And this, as I say, is what she's all about, encouraging disabled people in the workforce, encouraging companies to be more accessible, just trying simply to make the world a better place. Shouldn't be that hard. Let's get her on the pod. It's Liz Johnson. Well, hi, Liz. Great to uh, have the chance to speak to you. How are you? I'm all good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good. Busy, 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 I would imagine. Yeah, busy, but also like productively at home because I've just got back from Brazil. So uh, I'm on my two weeks indoors. Right. I can't go anywhere. So. Was that business or pleasure? Oh, no. So pleasure. So, um, so my partner was... I think he's actually my fiance because we're supposed to get married in October. Um, but, oh, I, no. but I still, I still just call him my boyfriend. It's <laughs> good to clarify these things. I, yeah. I know, I don't know. I still can call it. Just call him my boyfriend. Um, he's so he still swims. Um, so he's out in Sao Paulo because he swims for the Brazilian team. So right. obviously the border had been closed for four four months. I think like since I got back in March. So it was just the opportunity to go. It was time. So I went. <laughs> Let's start, Liz, with your background in swimming, because I'm sure that's what has taken you on the journey to where you are now. And also, what has driven you throughout your life so far, would you say? I think the one good thing about everything I do is they've always had a common thread, and that is that actually just to, that I want to normalise the differences that I have. So even as a child, like my parents were very much Mm. like, you are who you are, and it shouldn't stop you doing anything. You're just going to have to find different ways of doing things. And so swimming, I guess, gave me that outlet um, to do that, which is which is ultimately why I ended up being a Paralympian because I'm a very competitive individual and I, I loved sport. Um, but obviously the Paralympic movement has evolved massively over the last 30 years. Um, and I think this is why I say there's so many similarities because the world I'm living in now that we'll talk about later, wasn't, it wasn't, isn't too dissimilar to how swimming was back then. Like people were just grateful if you had a disability that you could swim without drowning, or if you were me because I've got cerebral palsy and I'm hemiplegic. So basically, like the whole right right side of my body, half of it is um, not as coordinated, doesn't have as much movement or function or dexterity. It's weaker basically, and so people were just grateful I wasn't swimming around in circles. But um, and that's the reality. So and I think, but I was always very very supported from my teachers my friends and my family to that actually I didn't ever see it as an issue or a defining characteristic it was just part of who I was um and so I think swimming and the Paralympics gave me a focus and gave me a motivation to help me overcome any barriers that came my way because I think it's the same for everybody, whether they're disabled, whether they like if they fit into a different a minority demographic or if they're just actually a human being. We've all got different obstacles to overcome and some are just more visible than others or more or less understood than others. But essentially, if you if you're motivated by something that means enough to you and it might even be just that you've got a dream job that people don't think you can you're going to ever be able to obtain, um, I think it helps you overcome those barriers or, or when you're, if you're a parent, I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but I know plenty of people that are and, and challenges that previously when they weren't parents, they would have just like sidestepped or, or given up on 
if it means that their child is going to miss out or they or their child will benefit if they push through these barriers and they find ways yeah. to overcome these obstacles so i think for me go to go back to lee's question is that the paralympics was that motivation that goal of going to the paralympics and that goal of wanting to be the best swimmer that i could be ultimately helped me have perspective on anything else that came my way and Liz, I remember, you know, we were sitting, I think we were in the same hotel in Rio um, and, you know, sitting, having sort of chats at night with Claire and everyone. And there is a time where that transition, the same for any athlete, has to be made. So when you decided, OK, I'm not going to do the swimming anymore, I'm going to move on, I'm going to get into to business. Was that a tough decision for you? I always feel a bit guilty for saying no. Um, but I think, again, you need to give it some perspective. And it was that, that my my parents were always very like realistic in that they were like, OK, swim and enjoy it. But as soon as you don't enjoy it anymore or like you need to have a plan B, but also you need to have a plan B because you're only as good as your last swim or your next swim in as much that you could train as hard as possible and you could be as committed. But there might just be someone that's better than you. And you don't want your life to be defined by things that you can't control. So it always grounded me in that sense. And then it meant that I did. I got to the point where I was like, actually, this isn't the most important thing to me anymore. Because I wasn't naturally the most gifted swimmer. I used to have to work really hard. Um, which I, And I, I, that's not a complaint. And I loved it. And it, it, I valued it more. And it meant I was more prepared for like races and things. Because I knew I'd done everything I could. But it was always, swimming was always at the forefront of my mind. So whenever I was making a decision, whether it be a social um, engagement or something to do, even to do with school, like I would pick my subjects based on like how they fitted into the timetable to enable me to train better. Um, and so every swimming was always at the forefront. But then between London and Rio, I started to go through this sort of mental shift where as I said, my partner swims as well. And going into London, I wanted us both to win. But if only one of us could have won, then I definitely wanted it to be me. Whereas moving towards Rio, I was starting to make decisions. I would rather him win me. Like I was like, I was okay with everything I was achieved. And I was ready to move on. So then I started to like, I started to get involved in other things and explore other avenues. And I still had, I had my business degree already. Um, and I always thought I would go into business in some element. I thought I'd be an accountant, but, um, so yeah, I d- so it wasn't difficult for me. It's just all those things fell into place. And it, but I think the reason for that was that it was my choice. Like you speak to a lot of athletes and I know like Lee, when we, like when we were in Rio, cause we always end up talking about, our former lives because there's so many athletes mm. there in the broadcasting team but I think a lot of people find themselves transitioning out of sport because they got beaten or because they got taken off a program <laughs> or because they got injured whereas for me I feel like the decision was mine and there's something empowering nice. about having well, choice it's nice to have a plan isn't it <laughs> and for it to, uh, to to move in that direction yeah. so, so three Paralympic medals including a gold in Beijing and on the podium as well in 2012 you know great memories there but what was it about your swimming career and what you discovered maybe about attitudes towards people with disabilities which has made you such a driving force in can we say your second phase of life No, it probably is the second phase of my life. You're right. I think for me, it was that I was very fortunate 
to be in a world where people, they didn't initially understand disability, but they learned to admire it, respect it and treat it for what it was and just not see it as any differently. So by the time we got to London 2012, the Paralympics was about elite athletes who happened to have a disability competing in sport. And it was, Mm -hmm. in that sense, it was seen as equal to Olympic sport. Whereas my 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 issue, and I have talked about this a lot, is that actually, if you were in a room of two hundred able-bodied people and said, "How many have you been to the Olympics?" Other than the circles that we find ourselves in, you the answer would be not many. Like not many people would put their hands up. And then if you were to ask, "Okay, how many of you got an Olympic gold medal?" Even fewer would put their hands up. Right. Whereas what the Paralympic movement did was showed what people are capable of, but without then the further exposure and exploration and education to the wider masses about how that happens and what that means and giving it relativity, it meant that everybody who had a disability that didn't want to be a Paralympian or who wasn't a Paralympian was actually devalued or undervalued more. And that's not fair because that's not the real world. The real world is that only 1% of the global population end up going to the Olympics. So why is it that if you've got a disability you have to be deemed extraordinary when all you really want to do is be able to live your life, pay your mortgage and and have um, an equitable experience to opportunities that are out there. So in a way, what you're saying there, before we get into the detail of what you're practically doing, in a way, what you're saying is, you know, this whole idea of, you know, being an inspiration and um, you're doing something superhuman was the campaign, wasn't it? 2012, you know, a great campaign. But it, it's, it's the tone, isn't it? That It's the language that we use around these sort of conversations that's so important. Yeah, see, it's the understanding that goes with it. And I think that is one thing that London 2012 did and massively took steps forward was that because there was so much more opportunity for coverage they could delve deeper into the hows the whys and the whats of who these athletes were so it wasn't the inspirational piece is not that they get up in the morning they go train and they go race and they win medals that's not the inspirational piece the inspirational piece is how they circumnavigate barriers that shouldn't even be there to enable them to do that I actually remember a discussion um, during the, the Superhumans campaign um, that several people, you know, in your normal day to day life with disabilities said, we don't want to be superhuman. We just want to be treated as human. We want the same basic uh, things in place so we can go on a bus, get to work, go to a supermarket, move around with ease. We don't all need to be superhuman. But it's an interesting take on what, as you say, Jonathan, was a fabulous campaign. But we are talking about a very elite percentage of a a group of people who are all just wanting to do the basics well. And and that idea of the barriers, Liz, the barriers in our everyday life, in society, is very much, I guess, at the the heart of of what you do. I mean, tell us first of all what your your mission is, if you like. Well, our organisation's mission is to normalise difference. Ultimately, we focus on within the workplace because, as Lee points out, so many people are trying to circumnavigate barriers that just shouldn't be there to have an opportunity that they have every right to be Mm. able to access. And so it's, again, it's not that um, campaigns are outlandishly inaccurate. It's just that they need um, reference points so that people can relate to them. 
And so what we try to do is we advocate for authentic inclusion. So you normalize differences within the workplace. But like what we try to do is in a very real way. So you talk about lived experiences and it's a term you hear a lot, but actually everybody's got lived experience of something. So sometimes that doesn't quite get the message across. It's more that my team is just naturally by the by by the sheer makeup is very authentically inclusive and and naturally diverse and we didn't have a diversity or inclusion policy in place we were just focusing on getting the right people in the team to to achieve the, the goals that we're trying to and motivate others to do the same and so it's about having very real and frank opportunities to have conversations about what's right and what's wrong and having someone who's willing to call it out and in a trusted environment where it's not to say you're you're doing this incorrectly, you should be punished if you're an organisation that isn't quite there yet. It's that you probably have never had to think about this before because it's never directly impacted you. But what if everybody with blonde hair didn't work here because the door only the door only accepted people who came in with dark hair? Because that's essentially what we are talking about when we are talking about an equitable experience for people of any demographic, but specifically people with uh, with disabilities, because they tend to be, they tend to be the forgotten demographic whenever you're talking about diversity and inclusion. Yeah. I mean, what, from your experience and and obviously you work with people who will have hit these barriers in, in an employment sense uh, in the past, you know, can you give us practical examples of where, organizations companies corporations are getting it so badly wrong well i think most places in some shape or form so for example um, we went to an office building and one of my team can't use the the revolving doors because the the way his chair works it just doesn't fit through those so then he there was a separate door but you had to speak to a camera and a security guard then buzzed you in and even at that level, it's not an equitable experience because he doesn't then get to choose when he goes through that door. He's reliant on someone else deciding it's okay for him to go through that door. Whereas if you walk up to that revolving door and you just, you, you just go through it, then then um, you're in the building and it's your choice when you go in and it, it doesn't require anyone else to be there to let you in. But, or it doesn't. It, ultimately, you're not someone else's puppet. And that's just one simple example. But I think the biggest, the biggest thing is the transport system. Like people don't appreciate just how difficult it is to travel around, specifically on public transport, if you've got an impairment. And obviously, visually impaired people, they rely on public transport because they can't drive for obvious reasons. Um, but the thing is, if you book, you have to book assistance on a train and if that assistance doesn't turn up then you can't get on that train but similarly you have to book that assistance 24 hours in advance well if you're in a board meeting and it's going to overrun you you're already trying to prove yourself that you can compete on a level playing field with everybody else and you deserve your place on that on that board and then you have to say sorry even though we're in the middle of a really heated discussion I've got to go now because my train, if I don't get on this train, I can't get on another one for 24 hours. Like People don't appreciate the juggling act that is involved in, in, and this sounds dramatic, but sometimes in just existing and getting through the door if you've got a disability. And it's something you see, um, Les, 
a lot from uh, somebody who I know and have worked with before, for example, Sophie Christensen, uh, who's one of the para dressage riders. Now, Sophie's got 10 Olympic medals, like eight golds to her name, but she's got a master's in maths. She's a statistics analyst in the city in one of the tech departments at Goldman Sachs. If you look at her Twitter feed, she seems to be in a running battle with any train company because the number of times she has asked for assistance to be able just to go in and do what is a high power job and it doesn't turn up and she is left on platforms. Sometimes she's left on a train. She can't get off a train. So therefore, the whole train is delayed. People are glaring at her. You know, she is dealing um, with quite severe cerebral palsy, you know, to be able just to go in and do that job is a, a real stress to her. And, you know, one week she's getting held up and putting on posters as being one of these superhumans. And the next week she is basically unable to go into work unless there's assistance there for her. So I think it's a, a really valid point that, that you, you make and that your business is trying to work with because it actually is affecting even the people that we are putting on posters and saying that these are the ultimate to aim for yeah absolutely and i think it's we we're, we're so programmed to judge on what we can see and actually 70 percent of disabilities are invisible and so those are the bit, like if you've got an invisible disability you're even more anxious it's like when i'm if i'm out and about in the summer and i've got shorts or a skirt or a dress on and you can see my splint on my leg then people make instant allowances for things whereas if i'm in the winter and i've got trousers on and boots and you can't see my like my splint then nobody would understand why I'm going to sit on the floor because there's no bench to sit on or or I'm slow and I'm getting in the way because again they they assume that if you've got a mobility issue then you must be using a wheelchair or you or you must be using a big clumpy mobility scooter which is fine but I'm at that point in my life where I'm like I'm not I I, if I used a wheelchair be much like swimming I would go around in circles um so like because I've only got one arm to power it but I'm not ready for a big shop, uh, mobility scooter so I've got a really I think it's cool I'm starting to I'm learning to love it slowly but like a little cool it's not quite a bike because it hasn't got any pedals but it's an electric type bike slash scooter thing that I'm like okay that fits I'm okay with this but because it yeah but yeah. because it's not your traditional mobility scooter the amount of times I get stopped is unbelievable because again I don't look my age I mean I'm 34 34 so I'm getting on but like I don't even look 34 but even at 34 people wouldn't expect you to be going around on a mobility scooter it's not the norm and I think so a lot of what we do is around have like trying to encourage people to be empathetic to difference and actually it's not a one-size-fits-all policy and having this element of trust and I think during lockdown I've come to the conclusion that humanity peaked in week six because in week six about around about week six of the lockdown (laughs) There was a good community spirit. People were aware of others' needs. They were like they were they were observant. They were helpful, thoughtful, all of these things. And then, but now we seem to be quickly going back to a that. Well, I haven't been out for ages, so now I can go out. I'm going to just look after myself. If we bring it back to employment and, and the attitudes of companies and corporations, Liz, what about recruitment? David Clark, uh, the footballer, was on one of our previous episodes in this series, and, and he was he was very good on this. He, he still believes there's a huge untapped workforce out there. W- would you go along with that? Absolutely. That's like one of our biggest things. It's like there's a whole talent pool of people, especially those that are 
used to working from home have been almost been ignored or invisible to the wider society because they don't fit your traditional standardized recruitment processes. And I think the one thing I would say is the majority of organizations and people working within recruitment, they don't, they don't intentionally get it as wrong like as they do. Like they don't meet, they don't set out to cause offence or upset, mm. but it goes back to this exposure and education and empathy around how difference looks and how yeah. difference functions. And a subconscious bias, I suppose. Absolutely, and I like a, yeah, a preconceived idea of what is possible. And so I think the, one of the biggest things, the the problems, biggest issues with recruitment is the pro, the actual processes that are in place, and you alluded to it mm. uh, before that we. Um, like lots of organizations have lots of different stages and they they view it as an additional cost or a, a choice when actually it's not a choice it's a responsibility because i go back to the idea of if you weren't allowed in a building or you couldn't work for an organization based on the color of your hair or the color of your eyes like that isn't that wouldn't be accepted so just because you you need to access the building in a different way or you need to work slightly different hours to to your some of your team members or you need different equipment to use that to make that happen. That shouldn't rule you out of sh- of, of of being capable. And, and and as you said, David said, because of that one-dimensional, narrow-minded, like blinkered look, you are missing out on a whole pool of talent that has been sat there waiting for ages. Because education is almost a safe space for a lot of people with disabilities. So because a lot of the barriers are removed. And so you'll find some of the most educated, resilient people happen to be disabled in some way. And actually, they would bring so much more to your organization because they're used to problem solving every single day because they live in a world that isn't built for them. Yeah, no, that's exactly the point that, that David was mentioning. And he, he talked about actually going for an interview at, at HSBC and, and he was struck by the way they framed the tone of the interview, which was very upfront with him. They said, look, we're going to be honest with you here. Um, we, we're not set up. We're, we are not set up for having uh, a blind person on, on this floor, basically. But would you help us? Would you help us get there? Would you be a trailblazer? And he said, OK, not obviously not great that they weren't set up but at that particular time in the in the in the 1990s he he was impressed by the fact that they were at least open and honest and upfront about it and and do you think more companies need to sort of have that approach yeah absolutely and i think and we've done a lot of work with hsbc recently actually and they are very open minded and they have made huge gains in their recruitment processes but then also their onboarding processes and also then once people are in place how they can best equip them and support them to reach their potential but it's exactly that it's about and a lot of the work that we do is around that i said it before but the normalizing difference so that people are aware that it's okay to to ask things it's okay to not know something because i think one of the biggest things is people like tiptoe around the fact that you're you're different in some way but the reality is the majority of people with disabilities that are going in to, to seek a, a job or anywhere, seek an opportunity, they didn't wake up that morning and become disabled. They might have acquired their disability, but it likely would have been a few weeks or a few months ago at the minimum if they're now stepping out into society. So they're aware that they are different. And I think the other, like, to go back to what David said, is it's a good point that people are like, well, we're not set up. Well, how do you know you're not set up? 
you're probably not, but it's that it's that assumption that they they place on you because what they what people do is they try to imagine doing things how they would do them, but with what you've got available to you. So just oh, yes. like so just quickly, so like I've had people who've broke like like friends that have broken their wrist or something and then gone, Oh my gosh, I don't know how you do this. Like it's so hard to do everything with one hand. I'm like, well, I don't know how you do it with two because I've never had two that fully function. And so I said, I don't, and that I think to go back to like the whole theme of this, this conversation is, and where I said that my whole life links together is that even as a child, when I was learning to tie my shoelaces I didn't learn to tie my shoelaces like everybody else. My mum used to say, right, this is point A, as in your laces are not done up, and this is point B, your laces are now tied up. How are you going to do it? So she w- we, wouldn't, we wouldn't try and adapt able-bodied ways of doing things. We would in- Sometimes we would, obviously, but instinctively... I would go, she would tell me what needed doing and then I would instinctively go to do it the way that I could do it and then she would help me build and develop on that. Do you think though that the fact that there seems to be um, a sort of move for people to be working from home, now I know this is not a solution to everything that you're trying to achieve, but do you think that this might make it easier for people with disabilities to be integrated into jobs that they might not have considered because they can work from home and so much is being done online and in terms of videos and things like that? Do you think this is a a positive if we're having to look at it that way? Absolutely. I think it's definitely been an eye opener for the majority. I think the frustrations for people who have been advocating for um, flexible working and and different working environments for decades is that now, again, now that it suits the majority, it happens like almost overnight, whereas for 30 years, nobody could see the value in it. So there is that element of frustration. But definitely, I think I, I hope it's opened people's eyes and made them more empathetic to how how difficult it is to try and fit into a world that is not set up for you. Uh, But similarly, the flip side is working from home isn't the answer for every disabled person. Like some people would want to go in. So again, yes, it's one of those double-edged swords, a bit like being superhuman and being a Paralympian. It's, it's, It's twofold and we have to think of both sides. But again, if we can do the right level of education around this now and, and, and relative like link it all back together and give people perspective and understanding, then absolutely it's only a good thing. But I think it all goes back to these organisations realising that this isn't this shouldn't be something that's not in the budget this year. This isn't something that it, it's, it's on our agenda for 2025. This is a very real issue that and is it's the cost implications aren't as massive as people think they would be for the benefits that can be achieved. And things can happen now, Liz, can't they? This must be a message you're always trotting out. You know, this doesn't have to... The, the, the situation with the revolving door you mentioned, that doesn't have to go to that company's access committee to, to have a, a committee meeting in a few months' time to then refer to another committee meeting and maybe make a decision in a couple of years. These things can happen instantly, can't they? A lot of them can, anyway. Yeah, they can happen instantly. They might need to sign off, but like, let's speak to that person tomorrow and get these things signed off, you know? And actually, I think... The wider world at the moment is looking at new ways of existing. And so why would you not start right at the bottom? And, and I, I honestly believe 
that no new policies, no new procedures, no new structures should be signed off unless they are authentically inclusive. Because otherwise, maybe that's, that's where the idea of additional cost comes from or inconvenience or other negative connotations that go with that because people are having to change things. All that needs to happen is that authentic inclusion needs to be at the foundation of anything that you do. And like we've only had to look at, um, you know, when we've pedestrianised high streets over the pandemic or created one-way systems to allow for social distancing, the first thing that got overlooked or covered off was disabled parking or dropped curbs or pavements like that got extended but they weren't on a curb so so a wheelchair user still couldn't fit down them or or there was an extra cycle lane but it wasn't wide enough for a trike so like so all that's happened now is people have put all in put put in this infrastructure and if they've got anything about them at all they've had to rip it out and put different infrastructure in and if they haven't got anything about them then they've excluded an entire demographic again yeah (laughs) you laugh you have to to laugh or you cry (laughs) exactly but it it goes full circle doesn't it because then if you if you had the committees who are making those decisions about the cycle lane for example the council committee if if they had proper inclusivity then they would have a voice raising that issue there and then yeah, that, that is key, I think, that whole that or inclusion. Society and the community, by its, by its sheer existence, is diverse, right? Because everybody in it is who they are. And, and actually, they re- represent customers' needs and, and employees' needs and just people's needs in general. Mm. So that, that inclusive inclusion and that diversity should be um, genuine, I think, throughout any, any committee, any organisation, any group, any club, any team, because as, as standard. that's what you need. Yeah, as standard, because actually everybody has got an opinion, everybody has got a need, and you're never going to be able to service everybody if you're not if you're not representative of the people you're trying to serve and i think as well um it's it's a great point you made about uh the whole thing about working from home and um because now the majority need it that all of a sudden it you know becomes an acceptable thing to do and i think that is also a case in business and in sport in terms of you know i i work in formula one which is a sport which can problem solve within you know 24 hours if the car is not working on the friday it will be working on the saturday they fly parts out overnight at huge expense which is not a bad thing that's exactly why the formula one teams were at the forefront when they were making ventilators and they were so quick at getting things into the nhs they just couldn't believe how how slow things were uh, you know how long things were taking it doesn't matter if it's a formula one team if it's a council if it's a, an investment bank very often until you get somebody who it directly affects, that change won't be implemented. And that is wrong. Yeah, and I think you make that's a very valid point because a lot of the time when we're working, even working with organisations, like I said, no one ever means to cause offence or not do the right thing. But the inspiration for getting involved definitely nine times out of ten comes from them either being directly impacted or a family member or someone of their their, their wider social circle that's when people it resonates with people but the reality is anybody can come be tabled at any time even like even as i get older i feel a lot less i like a lot less functional than i did when i was like 11 so it happens to everybody and i think and actually again because disability is just viewed in a different way 
it, 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 again, not not right, but I have never been discriminated against because I'm a female. Lee, I'm sure you probably have, but I've never been discriminated against because I'm a female because people see the fact that I'm disabled as a far bigger issue mm. and that I have a disability. But the point is that I am, as a person, you're, you're disabled because of the barriers that society places on you or the attitudes that other people have of you. Yes, I have a disability, but that that's not what disables me. The, dis- the being disabled comes from the barriers that people don't remove. And do you think that's different from country to country? Because obviously you've just been to Brazil. Um, your boyfriend slash fiancé, Felipe, is Brazilian. Just whatever he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he is Brazilian. Does he see it in, in, a, in a different way, even though he's very much British-based now? Yeah, they have a very different attitude again. Like, actually, like, we say sometimes in Britain we're too focused on policies and procedures it's like rather than just getting things done like you like there's means and ways around things and in brazil they're a lot more practical about their the way they solve things whereas in britain we'll get to the same outcome but it'll take three months to get it signed off um and so i guess that goes back to jonathan's point earlier on about is it that sometimes there's too many um, too many links in the chain or cogs in the machine that need to to okay something whereas actually just problem solve like you said Lee as you do in Formula One if the problem is today how can we fix it will we have a resolution by tomorrow and obviously some things take longer than others and in Britain in some respects we have a lot better experience in other other um, areas of the world like I know when I'm in America people always ask me if I was in the military or if I've got a ball injury from like a softball game or something and when I say no I, I was born with my disability instantly they pity me and instantly that's a shame or instantly they say god bless you and like because they view it as um an inadequacy or a a, like a fault in in my human makeup but actually like i said earlier everybody's got obstacles to overcome and barriers that they need to find ways around and i'm just quite fortunate that i've had my my whole life so i've kind of learned how to manage it Liz, it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting to you. Um, thank you so much. No, thank you for having great. me. We'll, um, we'll let you get on and work out whether he's your boyfriend, fiancé or husband or whatever he might be. <laughs> um, what, what, when's know. the date? Well, October the 30th, because okay. again, it was that 2020 year. We'd always, for the last nine uh, years, we'd like, after Tokyo, yes. so much will happen. But obviously now Tokyo is another year away, but we'd already kind of, we'd already, we booked it at Christmas, so... Uh, <laughs> This is so relaxed. I can't believe how relaxed you are about this. <laughs> so there we go. That's Liz Johnson and a terrific way, I think, to end this Paralympic Fields series, uh, wrapping up so much of what we've been talking about and the, the elite sport that you know she competed in and she conquered the world in. And now the desire to make a change in society and in the workplace as well. And it's not just a desire. It's actually happening thanks to her work with the Ability People. Uh, I love, though, Lee, uh, the mention on her Wikipedia page. It says, uh, even after her experience on Celebrity MasterChef, because I think she went on in 2016, I think it was, she once set fire to a hotel at a wedding. (laughs) While cooking toast. I have also done that. Yeah. Um, You know those sort of travelator toasters you get where you put it in the top and it spits out the bottom? Well, it's obviously designed for a thin slice of bread. I wanted to warm a croissant, which is all very middle class, isn't it? And then I basically got the thing jammed 
it caught fire and the hotel was evacuated on the morning of a wedding. So I was absolutely hated for the rest of the day. But... Well, I don't think that's necessarily a prank. I mean, I will try and speak to Liz about this because we are kindred spirits in that. It can it can happen to anyone. What is the optimum <laughs> toasting device, do you think, at, at, a, at a hotel? Is it the sort of conveyor belt one or is it the old school up and down toaster? Well, I think the conveyor belt. Or do you just good. want your toast made for you by a servant? Uh, well, somewhere? no, because it never, it's never that warm, is it? So I always go conveyor belt, but I also am the person that stands really close to it. And then when I check both sides, see that no one's looking at me, and then I turn the dials round to five because I want it quick. <laughs> I'm very impatient. Well, that's the other thing. That is the other thing. It is never set to the right temperature, is well, it? Because if you put it through once, it's, it's under done that's the thing through twice it's always coming out smoking and black it is how hard can it be the first time round, you get anemic toast and then you have to ride the levels (laughs) so i can feel a whole new podcast coming on about this i i I don't know how how popular it would be but i think this toast is interesting so please check with liz if you can uh, as to whether that is indeed true it's given us a little bit of entertainment at the end of today's pod liz johnson who once set fire to a hotel tell which surely is a bit of an exaggeration whilst cooking toast and as i would say three people on this podcast i would say you're the odd one out if you've not done it so uh, don't start rounding up on on liz and myself <laughs> lee it's been a pleasure thanks so much for coming on this uh, this series um, we'll, we'll get our heads together shall we and think of something we can do in the uh, in the future toast or no toast but we'll probably, probably uh... not toast but it's been an absolute pleasure you know we're missing out on the paralympics um but this has been uh, a substitute um, to be able to to speak to uh, a lot of our great athletes who hopefully we will see in action in Tokyo 2021. Indeed. Fingers crossed. Lee, thank you. Thank you to all our guests across this series. Tani Gray-Thompson, Claire Balding, David Clark, Charlotte Henshaw, Ali Jawad, Ellie Simmons and Liz Johnson. And there's someone I've forgotten somewhere along the line. Who was that? Oh, it was the Rising Phoenix guys, Greg Nugent and John Batsek, uh, the, the guys behind the brilliant movie Out Now on Netflix. So if you've missed any of those episodes, you can download them all. Series 2 of Sport in the Fields. And if you weren't with us for Series 1, that was all about the Olympic Games. 16 episodes on that one. So there's loads of catching up to do if you haven't been with us from the start. We are Sport and the Fields, and this has been a 9419 independent production. Mm-hmm.